Good morning. All right, let's be in class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we again thank you so much for the privilege of calling you Father. We thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for the spirit that enlightens and ennobles us. We pray that your presence will be with us. Join us. May we uh, glorify you in our study. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number four in the quarterly education, and the title this week is The Eyes of the Lord, The Biblical Worldview. And starting the second paragraph, the lesson states... Today, many of the smartest and best educated people think that humans evolved from what was originally a simple life form. As human beings, we never look at the world from a neutral position. We see it always and only through filters that impact how we interpret and understand the world around us. That filter is called a worldview. And it's so crucial that we teach our young people and even older church members to have a biblical worldview. I, I agree, but a couple questions. Is there more than one biblical worldview? Is there a biblical worldview that teaches a God who tortures people in hell for all eternity? Is there a biblical worldview like that? Is there a biblical worldview that teaches God imposes laws like we do and inflicts punishments on rule breakers? Is there a biblical worldview like that? <clears throat> Can one accept a biblical worldview and still reject God and crucify his son. They did. Yes, this is what happened. These were Bible believers that crucified Jesus. So understanding that one can have a so-called biblical worldview and still be an enemy of God, if we ask, once we understand that, what are some healthy biblical filters that will help us form an accurate biblical worldview, and help us be a friend of God's. So I've listed some here, and I'm going to go through some with you uh, and contrast what happens if we, if we reject that worldview and accept another worldview instead. And so I think one that the lesson listed is true. Here's a biblical world. Here's a belief that I think helps frame a filter that is a healthy filter for us to have. God is creator. Thus, life originates in God. We talked about the whole last lesson. And was created by God. That's a, that's a belief that creates a filter or a worldview. What is the problem? The consequence to human beings if we reject this and replace it with a godless worldview. What happens to human beings? What's the danger? What's the problem? There's no God. We just evolved. What then is the primary overarching law that governs life? Survival of the fittest. That becomes the primary law. Death becomes necessary for advancement. We must kill out the deficient gene carriers in order for the good gene carriers to pass on the best so the species advances. Death becomes necessary for advancement. There is no absolute truths. There's just relativism, meaning there's no moral absolutes. What is deemed good in one place and station in history changes, and good changes as our power brokers change. There's no absolute truth. There's no purpose for our existence other than to pass on your genes to the next generation. That's your purpose. Leads to nihilism hopelessness, pleasure-seeking, corruption. This is what a godless worldview does. 
power over, exploitation, control, justification, ends, justify the means, nihilism. But God as creator alone isn't enough to have a healthy worldview. God's laws are design laws. The protocols upon which reality are built to operate. This is another healthy belief that creates a filter if you have it. But what is the problem if we reject this and replace it with the idea God is creator and his laws for, for the physical universe like gravity and physics, those are design laws. But his moral laws are rules like we make up. The way he runs his government is the same way we do. He makes up his code, and then he enforces it by policing it and punishing rule breakers. If we accept him as creator, some of his laws are design laws, but others are imposed rules. What's the problem with that? What kind of character does a being like that have? What kind of method of rulership? What ultimately gives him the right in that construct. Power and coercion. Power. 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 He has the power to punish you. If he doesn't have the power to punish, you see, and this is what you hear, I, I can't tell you many theologians I've had this discussion with, and they always come back to, if you don't enforce punishment for law-breaking, then there's no law if you can't, if you can't enforce it. That's exactly true for our government. If you put a speed limit out here, uh, and uh, for whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is, but nobody ever enforces it, there's no speed limit. Do whatever you want. It's only by enforcing that kind of law that it actually is maintained. And so, God becomes coercive. Liberties are violated. Love is destroyed. Might makes right. There's nothing wrong with sin itself. There's only something wrong with what God will do to you for it. Think of the corruption it says about God in this view. God is viewed as arbitrary. This leads to doctrines like the divine right of kings. They have the right to, to rule this way because God rules this way. And God put them in that place so they don't have to be concerned. Anything they rule is divinely ordained because they're in the divine position by God. Domination and abuse. Irrational traditions and superstitions form. We could spend the whole class just going over those. We won't do it. Rituals or symbolic teaching tools that God actually gave us under this view become legal requirements rather than learning lessons. If you don't get baptized in the right way, you can't go to heaven. In fact, not only just the right way, you have to say the right words, and you've got to get the words right. If the words aren't right, then it doesn't count. And by the right person. And by the right person, that's right. If you had a woman baptized, it doesn't count. No, that, that's wrong. We all know that. Yeah, either sex is not a minister is wrong. Well, uh, yeah, well, there you go. Okay, but, but yeah, it had to be ordained. Had to have some other ritual in order for you to be ritualized in order for you to do the ritual. The Bible is interpreted through a worldview that makes God out to be untrustworthy and leads to the rejection of God altogether and ultimately the godless worldview. So this imperial-imposed Roman view of God who makes up rules and then and punishes for them ultimately is the cause of the godless worldview that we're dealing with today. Because it's a God who makes no sense, contradicts reality, and can't be trusted. But so, we have a couple of things. God is creator. God's laws are design laws. Those are worldviews that help us actually have a Bible worldview, biblical worldview, and 
be a friend of God. Another one. Sin is a condition of being out of harmony with God and his design for life. Thus, it's a terminal state that needs a remedy provided by God. That's a healthy worldview. Understanding sin is a condition of being out of harmony with how God built life, and we need healing or restoration by God. What happens if we replace this, though, with the lie that sin is a legal problem? It's a status of having a demerit in a book in a courtroom in heaven that requires legal enforcement and punishment by the ruling authority. Then sin, if sin is viewed this way, then the solution is legal. Unless Jesus didn't come to restore us to trust in order that he could restore in our hearts God's love for him and other people. No, then Jesus in this view came in order so that his father could kill him in our place. And this is what's taught in many Christian denominations that God killed Jesus on the cross. After Jesus came, he legally put all the sins of every human that's ever lived upon Jesus. And then God punishes Jesus in our place, executing Jesus on the cross, pouring out his wrath upon his son. And then if you accept this legal payment, God will mark a a mark in your book in heaven. You get declared to be legally righteous, even though you're still just as wicked as the day before. Salvation's perverted away from healing our hearts and minds into illegal adjustment in heavenly records and leaves people dying in sin while they have false security that they're saved. This is why certain forms of Christianity are very appealing to those who run crime syndicates. They can run their syndicates as long as they do the legal mechanisms that their institution requires and get their absolution from their misdeeds. They're told they're still going to have eternal life and they won't burn in hell or go to purgatory. Very appealing if you want to actually live a wicked life. This mindset leads to intolerance of other people and its attempts through history to enforce our religious views upon others. So we'll burn people at the stake. We'll imprison people. We'll have witch trials. We'll seek to get the right justices put in so that we can pass laws to make sure people obey what we believe is moral behavior. And then another one, healthy belief for a healthy worldview is that we can be true Bible believers who represent God and are his friends, is that the Old Testament is the record of God working to fulfill his promise given in Genesis 3 after Adam falls. The seed of the woman is coming to save you. It's going to crush the serpent and provide salvation for you. I'm sending my son. The Messiah is coming. The whole Testament is the story of God fulfilling his promise to bring Messiah so we can have salvation and Satan working to stop it. That's the story of the whole Testament. God working out the plan to save us and Satan trying to stop it. If you don't understand that lens, then you misread the entire Old Testament. And if we replace that with the classic view, then what happens is the Old Testament is seen as a time when salvation was achieved through animal sacrifices. People were saved by the blood of animals back then. You think I'm making this up? I can give you the quotes from the theologians from lots of different worldly renowned schools, PhDs and THDs and and theology and so forth, and they teach this. Salvation in Old Testament times was through animal sacrifice. But through Jesus' blood now, as long as you accept the blood payment, then he goes to the Father in heaven and he presents his blood to his Father and says, my blood, my blood, Father. And then the Father looks at that and his wrath is propitiated and he doesn't act out angry anymore. 
Think that through. Just think it through. Here we are on earth. We know something's wrong. We're sick. We're dying in sin. Something's terribly wrong. We, we feel in our hearts that God is mad at us, even though we don't, because we don't really appreciate that God so loved the world he sent his son, that if God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare us. Somebody gave him up. How will he not along with him give us all things? That while we were yet sinners, uh, Christ died for us. In other words, the Bible teaches God is not mad at us that God loves us and wants to heal us. But we in our sin, like Adam and Eve, ran and hid because we're afraid. We have all these misconceptions about God. So we're afraid right now in our hearts. And so I know what we'll do. When he sends his son, we've got to get back in God's good grace. He's mad. We've got this misconception. We don't, we don't believe he really, really cherishes us. What can we do to get back in his good grace? I know when he sends his son, we'll kill his son and offer him his son's blood, and that'll make him happy. And that's what most of Christianity teaches. We go to Jesus, we go to the Father and say, here's the blood of your son that we killed. Are you happy with us now? That's the payment I needed. Boy, I was so mad until I saw that you killed my son. Now I'm really happy with you. It's idiotic. Thank you. It's contrary to how reality works because it's all based on the lie that God's law works like human law. That it's a court system like this. It's not. You should think medical exam room. We're sick. We're dead in trespass and sin, sin. We're born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We have a condition we didn't choose with which we're born that through God's grace, acting in the life of Christ and his achievements, we have a remedy that can give us a new heart and right spirit, that can write the law in our hearts and minds, that give us the mind of Christ, that can circumcise our heart by the spirit, that can take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, that we can be reborn, that we can be renewed, that we can be recreated. They're all t- telling us the same thing. It's regenerational and transformational in our hearts and minds, giving us new characters. That's the real plan. But when we exchange it, so the healthy filters, four of them, and I'm sure there's more. These are just four to, to start the class with. God is creator and life originates in God and was created by him to operate on design laws, laws that are expression of his character of love, how reality works. Sin is a condition of being out of harmony with those laws. Metaphorically, like standing here with a plastic bag tied over your head, you're out of harmony with the law of respiration. That state is a state that is terminal. If something isn't done, it will result in death. What results in life is removing the bag, putting you back in harmony with the law. You revive and survive. So... And then the, and then last, the Old Testament is the record of God acting to bring Messiah to provide remedy to heal the condition, Satan working to obstruct it. And that's what you see happening. Those filters, if you have those filters, you'll have a biblical worldview that will really keep you fairly balanced in handling most stuff that comes at you. Sunday's lesson, fourth paragraph states, central to any Christian education is the reality not just of God, but of the kind of God that he is, a personal God who loves us and who interacts with us. He is a God of miracles who, though though using natural laws, is not bound by those laws and who can transcend those laws when he wills, such as in the virgin conception of Jesus. The teaching of this view is especially pertinent in our day because so much of the intellectual world claims, claiming erroneously that science supports it openly and unapologetically teaches an atheistic and naturalistic world. First, let's affirm that we absolutely believe in a personal God, a God who loves us and cares for us and who reveals his character of love to us, 
He, we also believe he's all-powerful. And the, but we also believe he never abuses his power or takes away our freedom. We believe in a God of miracles. No question about it. What do you think about this idea? He is a God of miracles who, though using natural laws, is not bound by those laws and who can transcend those laws when he wills, such as the virgin conception of Christ. What do you think about that? So, is this a lesson, lesson suggesting that God overrules, overrides, bends, goes around, or breaks his laws? Transcends. It sounds like that, doesn't it? When he, he's not bound by those laws. Now, now it's very interesting. Do you, do you think if the if we ask the authors if if in their statement this idea that he is not bound by those laws and can transcend them would it apply also to the moral laws? Because they they specifically said natural laws in here, and since they specifically excluded moral laws, I'm implying, and maybe they didn't mean it, but I'm implying that they wanted to not include moral laws here. They only wanted to talk about the natural physical laws here. So they didn't include it. So I'm, I'm reading that in. Maybe they're, uh, they're making that distinction between natural and moral. To me, this is the type of statement you get from somebody at moral development level four, which is law and order, where they always acknowledge design laws related to the physical world. They call them natural laws, laws of physics, laws of gravity, laws of health. But they always seem to make the distinction with moral laws, claiming that those are imposed laws or rules. It is an evidence that, I think, suggests the person who wrote this doesn't have yet a fuller appreciation of both natural and moral law, how they actually operate. So let's read some historic quotes and unpack and reflect on those together. This first one's out of a book called Education, page 103. What do you think of this? All things, both in heaven and in earth, declare that the great law of life is a law of service. Pause right there. What kind of law serves rather than takes? What kind of law does a Caesar use? An emperor? A king? Is their primary motive to sacrifice themselves to uplift the masses? Or is their primary motive to tax the masses to give to their uh, lifestyle? They take for their own benefit. That's power over. But this says that the primary law of life is the law of service, the law of giving. This is the law of love. Continuing on. The infinite father ministers to the life of every living thing. He ministers to the life of every living thing. Christ came to earth as he that serves. The angels are ministering spirits. Ministering to them shall be heirs of salvation. The same law of service is written upon all things in nature. Whoa. So up top there, that wasn't just physical laws. That was moral laws. That's the law of service. God gives. That's a moral law. Now it's all things in nature. Let's go on with another quote. Do you believe that God, first off, this is a question to me. Do you believe that God is not bound by this law? That he operates outside of it. That he does things that are not in harmony with it. Or he lives in perfect accord with this law of service. Here's another quotation out of the book Education, page 99. The same power that upholds nature is working also in man. The same great laws that guide alike the star and the atom 
control human life. The laws that govern the heart's action, regulating the flow of the current of life in the body, are the laws of the mighty intelligence that has jurisdiction of the soul. From him all life proceeds. Who's the originator of life? Where does life originate? In us? No, God is the creator. All life originates in him. All life proceeds from him. What law has jurisdiction over your soul? Is that just a physical law? Or is that a moral law? Interesting. Well, that's this, according to this author, that's the same law that guides the stars and the atoms. Interesting. Do you see? Well, continue on to quote. Only in harmony with him can be found the true sphere of action. For all the objects of his creation, the condition is the same. A life sustained by receiving the life of God. See, we don't have life original. We have to receive the life from God. A life exercised in harmony with the creator's will. To transgress his law, physical, mental, or moral, is to place oneself out of harmony with the universe to introduce discord, anarchy, and ruin. Does does this author sound like they're describing a God who operates outside his own law? Or in harmony with his own law? In harmony. Are all the manifestations, the stars, the atoms, manifestations of God sustaining, extending his own person and his energies, his resources to create and sustain his entire universe? Do you think God operates outside of his law? Yes or no? What about this quotation? This is out of uh, Education 108. Same book. Good book. This is, we're doing education this month, so I'm using a little bit of that book. By the laws of God in nature, effect follows cause with unwavering certainty. Cause and effect. We all know the law of cause and effect, don't we? Does God operate outside this law of cause and effect? Or, when God acts, God is causing, bringing about the effect. God is an originator. He causes. He brings about effects. And what allows for us, can we act in our universe to cause an effect? Can we do that? And how are we able to do that? Isn't it because of the orderly results of God's design laws built into the fabric of reality? And where do all of those laws have their origin? Where do all the laws have their origin? All the design laws. They all have their origin in God. And where do all the laws have the energy that sustains their operations and keeps them in operation? They have them from God. So does God change his character? Or is he the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow? Does God change his methods? Does God change his laws? Or is God always the same, always love, always constant, always reliable? If we introduce the idea that God can do what he wants whenever he wants, regardless of his law, what are we introducing? Satan's lie. That's Satan's lie. God makes up rules and does what he wants. The problem is that people want to understand God's law, and I hear this in churches, like human laws, like tax laws. That's how they want to understand it. And the ruler doesn't tax himself, he taxes his people. 
Therefore, the law of tax laws don't apply to the ruler. It applies to the subjects. So they want to see God as exempt from his own law rather than a manifestation of his own character built into the reality of the universe that he's constantly sustaining. Continuing on with the quote. The reaping testifies to the sowing. Here, no pretense is tolerated. Men are deceived. Excuse me. Men may deceive their fellow men and may receive praise and compensation for service which they have not rendered. You know what that's saying? You can say, I did this work and take payment for it when you really didn't do it. You can deceive fellow men. But in nature, there can be no deception. On the unfaithful farmer, the harvest passes sentence of condemnation. And in the highest sense, this is true also in the spiritual realm. Does God supersede this law? It is in appearance, not reality, that evil succeeds. Do you know how many people in our world today do not understand reality? This truth is lost on them. And they are manipulated by the media because they don't understand this truth. The deception, uh, this, this deception allows the falsehood that, that allow people to see evil and somehow thinking they're getting advantage because they go in and, and, they, and they rob this thing or they steal from that thing. And they think they got ahead because they ran out with this device or this TV or this money they didn't earn. And somehow they get ahead and that's the way to get it. It's a deception. It's not true. They're corrupting their character, hardening their heart, destroying their soul. There's no advantage in that. Continuing on. The child who plays truant from school, the youth who is slothful in his studies, the clerk or apprentice who fails of serving the interest of his employer, the man in any business or profession who is untrue to his highest responsibilities may flatter himself that so long as the wrong is concealed, he is gaining an advantage. But not so. He is cheating himself. The harvest of life is character. Does God supersede this law? Does he go around it? Just backing up a little bit, I completely, completely resonate to what you're saying about the law, but does he not, how do you explain that when he does have a virgin head, a baby, or when the son... Oh, we're we're going to get to the virgin birth here in just a minute. And in Joshua, when he was fighting and the son stayed in the air. So do you think that uh, those uh, thing that, that nature stopped its operation? Do you think he was operating outside of nature? Let, let's get to the virgin birth, and then we'll come back to the other one, okay? Let, let me read a couple more points. I got that specific nature since they used it. Um, in fact, I'm going to just skip on ahead. God never operates outside his own laws because they are always an outworking of himself who created and sustains all of his creation. It is Satan who wants to divorce God from his law to suggest that either the law operates without God or God operates independently from the law. Satan suggests that. Why? Think, think, of, the, think of the implication if either one of those are true. If the law operates without God, then we can be in charge of our own salvation. Nature itself becomes our God, and we are. Uh, nature itself becomes our God. Just have to know the design laws and keep them, or we are left without hope. There's nothing we can do. If God operates independent of His law, then His laws are something distinct and separate from Him. 
They're either rules over him he has to subject himself to, or he operates independent and he just makes up rules for everybody else. So Satan's allegations are, are confirmed. Either way, this is this is this whole thing is another manifestation of the infection. I want to read this quote. It's uh, I think you'll find it very interesting. Um, Education one thirty. One thirty. As regards this earth, Scripture declares the work of creation to have been completed. But the power of God is still exercised in upholding the objects of his creation. It is not because of the mechanism one set, one set in motion continues to act by its own inherent energy that the pulse beats and the breath follows breath. Every breath, every pulsation of the heart is an evidence of the care of him in whom we live and move and have our being. From the smallest insect to man, every living creature is daily dependent upon his providence. The mighty power that works through all nature and sustains all things is not, as some men of science claim, merely an all-pervading principle, an actuating energy. God is a spirit, yet he is a personal being. For man was made in his image. As a personal being, God has revealed himself in his Son. Jesus, the outshining of the Father's glory, the express image of his person, was on the earth, found in fashion of man. As a personal savior, he came into the world. The hand that sustains the worlds in space, the hand that holds in their orderly arrangement the tireless activities of all things throughout the universe of God, is the hand that was nailed to the cross for us. The the greatness of God is incomprehensible. Yet by his spirit is every, he is everywhere present. No tan, intangible principle, no impersonal essence or mere abstraction can satisfy the needs and longings of the human being in this life's struggle. It is not enough to believe in law and force, in things that have no pity and can never hear the cry for help. We need to know of the almighty arm that will will hold us up and of an infinite friend that pities us. So this is really, really good stuff. God's laws are design laws. They're constants. They're there. They never waver. But they are not some uh, impersonal force that just exists. They are manifestations and extensions of a personal, caring friend of yours who has built the entire universe and constantly given himself to sustain it and is interested in your personal welfare. Yes. There's an assumption that we make, and that is that we know all of God's design laws, but we don't. We don't know them all. We, no. we don't know them Yeah. All. And so we see some of these anomalies that happen over here. And A miracle. And yeah. raises questions, but we don't know all of the design laws in his future. Go, as time goes on, we may have better understanding of that. So I'm going to come to, let's do the virgin birth one. So the example in the lesson of the virgin birth, operating outside the natural law. I find it incredible. I was just incredulous that it was actually put there. Why? Because we, fallen human beings, can cause a virgin birth. A woman who has never had intimacy with any man can become pregnant by in vitro fertilization and implantation of an egg. We can do that. So imagine this scenario right today. 
we go to some primitive society here in the, in the world, and one night we have a 3D projector with stereo audio projection equipment, and we project into that, uh, that young woman's, 17-year-old woman's room, a brilliant angel uh, in stereo uh, surround sound into, the, uh, into her room, a projection of an angel who tells her that the power of God is going to come upon her, and she will conceive and give birth to a son. Then that night, or the next night, we have an aerosolized anesthetic pumped into the room uh, that she, under this anesthetic, uh, goes into a state of anesthetic sleep. And while she's asleep, our team goes in, harvests one of her eggs, fertilizes it with a Y-carrying chromosome, uh, uh, sperm, artificially implants it into uh, her uterus, and she wakes up the next morning pregnant and is going to give birth to a son. How might this be recorded by the locals? If they record this event, how might it go down? Now, in this scenario that I just described, is this science fiction completely preposterous, total fantasy, or is what I just described actually within our current technological abilities to achieve and pull off? Yes or no? Can we do it? And if we did that, are we violating any of God's laws? Or is it all totally within harmony of them? Yeah, I mean, without her consent... Oh no, that's why we had the that's why we had the the conversation with the angel and she said, "Okay, I'm willing." We got her consent. So now are we violating any of the laws? Any of the laws of physics? Any of the laws of of health? Are we violating any of the laws or is this everything we do is harmony with the law? Now, if we could do that, are you telling me that she couldn't get a visit from a real angel? And God didn't have the ability to do this? Come on. It's incredulous they would suggest that as evidence of him violating his laws. There's no need for that. He's the creator. He built, he built the physiology. So everything that we see as a miracle is in some way God acting through his designs and laws in ways that are beyond our comprehension. So therefore explainable. At some, at some level, at some point in, in time, yes. You will find that to be... So the sun standing still... It will in some way be, be explainable in a way that we don't know how to explain yet in a variety of different ways. Did the sun actually stand still? Or did God, who controls not just the sun, but time, ent- introduce some gravimetric effect that slowed time down in that space where they were, and they entered a time dilation bubble? for where they were, so the rest of the, um, the, or the cosmos was still operating. But there's a little bubble of time dilation happening here that we speculate about with quantum physics already. Um, that would be within harmony with how the laws of space-time work. We have the technology now to walk on fluid. There are fluids that can be made to where if you walk a certain way, you can walk right across a tank of fluid. If you walk too slowly, you sing. So there's all kinds of things. So I, so I, I, I don't really, I, I don't go with this idea that God violates his laws. I just don't go with it. Because they're all manifestations of his um, per- perfect life-giving glory. He will violate and does violate the law of sin and death. He destroys it, crushes it. Truth destroys lies, crushes it. Love destroys selfishness, crushes it. Yes, hand over here somewhere. Yeah. I think we have a very small understanding of his natural laws, and we almost put a limit on. Yes. In fact, we have scripture to support what I just said about the virgin birth, uh, Galatians 4, 4, and 5. 
But when time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law. He had to be born under law and under the very laws that God built our life to operate upon so he could actually fix what was damaged. by. If he could go around it, there would have been no reason for him to die in the first place. He could go around the law. Yes. So, and when you think about it, taking a step and, you know, sidestep, one of the biggest misconceptions is that, you know, well, if God is love, then why did he commit genocide in the Old Testament? And that is one of our big problems that we're having today and rebellion ensuing because of it. Yeah, but so, uh, what's the first question we ask when we go to a story? Pick, pick a genocide story in, in the Bible. Which one? So, first question to ask. What's your understanding of God's law? Well, I mean, I, I know what you're saying, but that's where the lie is twisted. The truth is twisted into a lie and is creating rebellion because they don't think God is following his own law. Yeah, because they actually don't understand his law. They don't understand his law, and they don't understand many other realities, for instance. They don't understand um, what the consequence of breaking God's law is. Because they accept it as an imperial law, they think the consequence is afflicted punishment. They don't understand the consequence is not sleep in the grave until you're raised. They don't see this first death experience as an act of grace. You understand what we call death is a manifestation of grace? That's what it is. It's grace. If there was no grace, there would be no sleep death. Adam and Eve would have died eternally and there would have been no more humans. They would have died eternally, been non-existent. That's, that's the wages of sin death, eternal non-existence. Adam and Eve would have died eternally, except God's grace intervened, promising a Messiah to come and partake of the condition and provide an alternate outcome through Jesus. And for that plan to be manifested, God acted in grace to provide an intermediary state known as sleep, the first death. We call it death. It's just a sleep, a temporary cessation of operations. It's like your computer, when it runs out of power, goes into sleep mode. It just needs to be powered up. It comes back to life. Everybody who has died through, through human history has only gone to sleep. But people who read the Bible they, that have these problems, they don't understand reality. They have a false filter. They think that what they did was they were killed. They weren't killed. They were put asleep. It would be a better analogy for, for you to uh, consider God put them in cryogenic storage. They're frozen and asleep like on a long space trip somewhere. And they, when they get to where they're supposed to be, they'll be woken up again. That's a much better analogy for all those people in the Old Testament. God put them to sleep. He's going to wake them up at the right time. And they continue on with the exact current of thoughts they had when they went to sleep. They, just like your computer. If your computer runs out of power today, and you let it sit here for 15 years, and then 15 years now you power it up, does it have any new data on it? It's exactly where it went to sleep. Okay, then that's, that's people. Everybody who passes wakes up where they were and continue on. And this is why there is a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, the righteous at the beginning of the thousand years, the wicked at the end of the thousand years. Why would a God of love, who the people are going to be lost anyway, why would he raise them only for them to suffer again in the first place? Just leave them at peace. Just leave them at rest. Why? It's not for them, honestly. It's not for their benefit, because they don't really benefit from it. 
But, but there are billions who do benefit from that resurrection. And who benefits from that resurrection? Universe. Every other intelligence. Primarily human beings, though. I think most of the non-human intelligences in the rest of the universe have been won over by enough evidence that they've seen since the cross. But all the other humans benefit. They need to see. They need to see that God keeps nobody out of the kingdom. Every single person who is not in the new heaven and the earth is out by their own free will choice. That even with the new Jerusalem on earth and the righteous there and the angels there and the, and the wicked are raised, if you read, there's a period of time goes by. They build implements of war and the gates to the new Jerusalem are open. And nobody comes in and there's no angels keeping them out. Not one of those people want to come in, and Revelation goes on to describe that they beg for the mountains to fall on them and hide them from him who sits on the throne. They don't want to be in his presence. This is to reveal exactly how God wins the war. How can you win a war against a liar by claiming your innocence? Imagine you're the pastor of a church, and your brother tells the church quietly behind the scenes for months that, that to pray for you because you've been stealing money, embezzling from the church. And you haven't taken a penny. And you finally discover that there's, because there's disruption happening. There's people be grumbling. Uh, tensions are rising. Factions are forming. Uh, some people who just know you said, that just can't be true. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I believe it. I believe it at all. Others are really, really doubting you now. And they're not listening to you when you, when you give your sermon. Uh, this church is splitting. You finally figure out, because somebody tells you, he's been rumoring that you're stealing from the church. So you get up, that weekend, and you say, hey, guys, I hear there's rumors going around I'm stealing from, from the offering plate. I want you all to know the truth. I've never taken a penny. Oh, it's all settled now, right? Done. No more problems. Or is there still problems? What's needed? Evidence. Actual confirming evidence. You need to call in an outside auditor. There needs to be line-by-line -line investigation. And only through a revelation of evidence over time can lies be refuted. This is part of the history that we've had here. This is also why they raised the wicked. Because the allegations, well, well, you know what? Uh, I was, I was 93 and, and on my deathbed, I remember my, my profligate son, uh, he said he was gonna give his heart to the Lord. I saw him pray. He accepted Jesus as his savior there when I was dying. He should be here, Lord. I know if he was here, he'd be here. Okay, go out to the wall, put a sign up, call for him to come. He's free to come in, call for your son to come. He won't come. He's not kept out by me. I'd love for your son to come and be part of our kingdom. He won't do it. And that's what's revealed and why they're raised at the end. Everybody. So when you look at the Old Testament, then you have to say, then why did he act this way? Because after Adam's sin, could any human being, any human being, be saved without Jesus? Or was Messiah necessary? Genesis 3, the Messiah comes. And so the whole Old Testament, that's one of the filters we talked about, the whole rest of the Old Testament is the story of God working to bring Messiah, Satan working to stop it. And this is why we have the focus we have. First, we have the whole world. And Satan almost hardens the whole world against God. And so God acts not to punish sin, only one righteous man left on the earth, but to keep open heaven for the Messiah. But then after the flood, very shortly, God focuses down and lets Abraham know it's through your family branch, your branch of the family, of the human family, I'm going to bring Messiah. And so our Bible doesn't give us much about what's happening in China or North America or Africa. We focus on Abraham, but we don't focus on Esau. We don't focus on um, 
on uh, uh, Ishmael, we focus on Jacob because it's through Jacob's branch of the family that Messiah comes. That's why the Bible has the focus because the entire focus is on coming Messiah. And, and Satan is working through, if you look after they came out of Egypt, every nation un, except one who tricked them, every other nation group, people group, attacked and tried to destroy Israel. Why? Because they were alienated against God and Satan is inspiring them to try and destroy the avenue for the Messiah. God had a plan, though. I'll send the pestilence, the, the hornet, and little by little they'll abandon it and they'll take it over. In God's plan, they wouldn't even have to fight. He would just cause them to want to abandon the land. There wouldn't be conflict. But because they doubted God, didn't have faith for God, didn't trust him in his plan, and then there was all this conflict, but God intervened to protect the avenue for Messiah. That's what you see happening in the Old Testament. It's very, very simple. Yes? In one of the stories in Joshua, uh, Joshua's told to go kill everybody, everybody, but in addition to that, he, he was told to hamstring all the horses. And I just, I can't see my God telling somebody to do that. I can see people up dead in the, battle, in the battlefield and all their horses are just crying because they can't get up to walk. Yeah, I can. I don't understand that. It makes perfect sense to me. Okay. Okay? Does God want them to value war? How does every human government historically, you look at, look at Egypt, look at Rome, look at, look at the Caesars, look at them all. How do they all get more wealth? By war. They pillaged. They went to war, and they took from other people to enrich themselves. God wanted them to not be rewarded with wealth from doing these acts that were simply necessary to keep open the avenue of Messiah. You're not going to get wealthy from this. That's why he'd have them wipe out entire villages and all their, and all their flocks and all their herds and sometimes would wipe out. What's this bleeding in my ears I hear? Okay. Why kill all the sheep? Because what was sheep and flocks to those people? Money. Money. He did not want them to think that you will advance yourself by war. You will not get wealthy. That's the ways of the world, not the ways of my kingdom. It might be sadly necessary in these circumstances to restrain and stop these people from killing the avenue for the Messiah and shutting down the plan of salvation. But you people should not think that you will advance the kingdom by going to war. You will not. So this is why he took the wealth out of it. It goes back to the previous statement that you can't advance God's kingdom by Satan's methods. You can't advance God's kingdom with Satan's method. So, um, Monday's lesson is the doctrine of creation and the importance of the doctrine of creation. Let's talk about why this is so important and what happens if we reject this and have a different worldview. Consider the implications. If we uh, don't hold to the worldview of God as our creator, uh, and we're going to contrast God, creator God, godless worldview. Who are humans in a God-created worldview. We are made in his image. We are special creations. We are the repositories of his living law of love. We are to exist in a universe where he built it for our health and happiness, a world of discovery, a world of never-ending learning, a world of joy, of sharing, an infinite, ever-ending growth. It's, a, it's an incredible place, an incredible purpose and, and perspective we have, who we are. In a godless universe, though, who are we? We're accidents. Something that just randomly came into being against all the chaotic forces in the universe that are working to destroy us. Nothing more than the latest evolutionary animal to come along with no purpose beyond reproducing. 
Why are we here under a God worldview? Because God loves us, and we're here in a similar way that you had children. Uh, parents have children because they love, and they love their children, want to pour into their children, and it brings them so much joy and happiness to have. We're here because God is love, and that's what love does. Love creates, and he's created children that can appreciate and enjoy and share uh, with him. Godless, there actually is no purpose or reason. It's an accident of random forces. Where are we going? God created a universe. There's an eternal future without any sin, not any pain, no suffering, no death. Uh, A a universe we can travel and share and have infinite, never-ending new experiences and discoveries. Incredible. Godless, we have a few specks of time on the cosmic scales, and then we die and are no more. Eat, drink, and be merry. What happens at death? God created, we sleep until the resurrection into everlasting life. In a godless universe, we simply cease to exist for eternity. Uh, what is right and what is wrong? Moral decision making. In God created universe, it's right. What is right is determined by God's design laws, His character, the principles of love. Any violations of His design laws injure and damage those who violate them. And God is working to heal and restore us. Godless, there are no absolute right and wrong. It changes based on culture, opinion, perspective, and ultimately who has the power to govern at that moment. Uh, the uh, strong will dominate and destroy the weak. This becomes the law, and thus Hitler in Germany manifests the outworking of that law. What do you do when you get all power and you don't actually have a God restraint? You kill anybody, and so did Stalin. Stalin did the same thing, and so does communist China. You see these, this law outworking. This is what happens. That's the morally right thing to do, to protect our, our infrastructure and in, in, in nation from, um, by killing. How about this one? The condition of the earth, God view. The earth is slowly, this is the God Bible view. The earth is slowly deteriorating from sin and separation from God. And despite all of our efforts to be good stewards, which we are, the earth will still unravel. Disasters will increase. This earth will be destroyed and God will make a new earth, the home of the righteous. The people in a God view are more important than the planet. Jesus died to save the people, not simply save the planet. He can make a new planet by speaking it into existence on day one. Godless worldview, the earth is our mother, and we are killing our mother. And we can save the earth and ourselves if we make the right decisions for the environment. This means ultimately that we must not only decrease carbon emissions, folks, We must reduce population. The earth is more important than the people. Understand the philosophy here. The godless philosophy leads to many practices that have the intention of reducing population. If we reject creation, we reject the foundation of everything that the Bible I have a whole section, I'm not going to go through it again, contrasting um, origins. I'll just say this much. If you're dealing with somebody who believes in evolution, you need to clarify the term evolution. The term evolution can simply mean things evolve. They change over time. God designed us to change over time. Epigenetic modifications, things change over time. If you get into a a discussion with somebody who believes in godlessness, don't talk evolution. You can't have evolution until you have a living organism. You have to have life first. Then things can change. 
You want to talk about origins. How did things originate? Where did life actually come from? Look at origins evidence. We have a whole thing on our, on our website on origins, and I will tell you, origin science unequivocally, unequivocally, overwhelmingly supports creation. It's not even close. Even people like Dawkins agree that the godless explanations of origins do not work. Because life requires, I've got a whole bunch of them, but one of the most important ones is, in order to have a living organism, you have to have physical matter, you have to have energy, and you have to have coded, accessible information in the DNA. The godless origins try to explain the physical matter, or where it came from, like the DNA molecules, and the energy, but they have no explanation how random forces can write the Encyclopedia Britannica take the letters of the alphabet, form them into words, and take those words, form them into sentences, and those sentences form them into paragraphs, and those paragraphs form them into chapters that actually are coherent and sensible and produce a living product. They cannot explain it. There is no explanation for it randomly. And so the, the fact that life requires that has resulted in people like Dawkins going on record and saying, we don't believe that life came here spontaneously anymore. We believe that it was seeded here by aliens from some part, far, far part of the universe. And we go, thank you for coming to Genesis 1. And Genesis 1-1 in modern language is an extraterrestrial life form, terraform planet Earth and seeded life here. Because God is not from Earth. He's an extraterrestrial. They don't like it, but that's reality. So you can really crush the godless origins. It's so overwhelmingly um, not evidence-based. It's a blindless faith model. A couple other things I want to get into in our last few minutes. The Bible, uh, the, uh, so the biblical worldview helps us see the world around us when we understand the, the God is creator, uh, God's design laws. But when we reject God as creator, then because of the law of worship, a looking outside of oneself for a frame of orientation that gives life direction, meaning, and purpose, all human beings do this, they will substitute new belief systems. New belief systems come to occupy the minds of men, like evolutionism. It's a religion, the godless evolution, godless origin. It's a religion based on faith without evidence is what that is. Okay? And, and it has certain requirements that you believe and adhere to. And if you don't believe and adhere to them, they will use the force of authority to have you fired from your position, have your, um, your, your uh, scientific uh, journal uh, articles uh, rejected, etc., uh, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, et if you don't adhere to it. Other religions, communism and socialism, they are a form of religious systems that are designed. And, uh, and then the most recent one is a modern form of pagan worship, which is green, the green movement. The green movement modern is a modern form of earth worship or paganism or nature worship. And if you look at most of the pagan deities, they were some form of nature. Worship the sun, worship the god of thunder or weather, worship the god of the sea, worship some, because natural disasters were powerful. So they worship nature in some way and they would pray to the god of nature to bless them. And so now we have the modern green movement, which is a form of nature worship. But I want you to notice that in all of these, who is the savior of each one? In evolutionism, we are the highest life form. And now we are working Right now, there are people who believe in it that are artificially working to evolve humans to humans 
And I've got a link in the notes. Elon Musk is actively funding research to create true cyborgs where they have already done in pig models. They have a little um, cybernetic implant the size of a quarter that they plant into the skull. They move a piece of the skull, plant it there, and they have these electro- electrodes that actually interface with the neurons, and they can actually have enhancement of pig brains through neural interface. And they're now ha- recruiting people to help become the researchers to make this for humans, that we can have true advancing humanity to the next level. I've got the link in here if you want to go look at the video on it. Communism, socialism. Think about this. What's the philosophy of these things? That we will create a utopian, Eden-like world where everyone has and everyone has everything and there are no haves and have-nots and we will do it ourselves. You understand that that utopia never happens. It's always a false promise. It always ends up exploiting and dominating and crushing. And then the third, the green movement. Earth is our mother. We have, uh, we are the plague destroying the planet. You see this coming through with lots of modern movies. Lots of modern movies have this theme in it that humans are the plague, that they're like a virus that needs to be, needs to be eliminated so the planet can get back to its natural basis. Um, but our, our Earth, and we're the plague destroying it, and uh, we only, um, and the only way for the Green Movement to succeed, I want you to look at every. If you look at the policies that they put out from the Green Movement, just ask yourself what would be necessary or what would be the outcome if we actually put them into full compliance worldwide. What would be the consequence? I can tell you the consequence. Look for it. They don't tell you this. Massive human die-off. It is not possible for a population of 7 billion people to sustain itself without modern um, machinery and various uh, the equipment that we use, modern farming and all this stuff, which requires the carbons. We can't, we, it's an un, you can't do it. If you actually put this in, there would be massive food shortages, human starvation, dying off of people. The, the, our, our, our societies would come to a crushing halt. And that's part of the goal. Yes. There, there is a goal to bring this about because um, the people who, in all forms of paganism, there is always an elite aristocracy that wants to benefit from the pain, suffering, and exploitation of the masses, the, the serfs who work the estates. All of these, evolutionism, communism, socialism, and greenism, are false and lead to the destruction of people. They are all based on fear, and they ultimately put self at the center, and we will save ourselves because we don't have a God, and we don't have a biblical worldview that actually teaches us a path to eternal life. So we have a responsibility to come back to actually teach the biblical worldview. And we didn't get into the three angels' messages, which were, were the next thing in Wednesday's lesson, but they're in the notes if people want to get to those. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you are the creator and that your laws are design laws, and you're the sustainer, and you're the revealer of truth, and you're the savior. And we ask for your spirit to be poured out to not only enlighten our minds, but transform us and free us and enable us to take a message that can bring real hope and real healing to this broken and damaged world, that the world can be prepared to see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.